1: Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This one features Ken Clark, one of the most dominant and prominent political figures of my life. A man who's been an MP for 49 years. He's the father of the House, one of the longest serving cabinet ministers in history. Chancellor, Health Secretary, Home Secretary, amongst so many others. And now finds himself... I mean, he's a man who's permanently having renaissances... Um, But he finds himself at the moment in a position where, once again, people are talking about him potentially becoming Prime Minister. We get his view on that. Um, It's probably what you would guess uh, from someone with the uh, sense of humour that he possesses. Um, But also, I spoke to him on the day... So it's the day after the Supreme Court ruling against Boris Johnson and the evening that Boris Johnson had just addressed the House of Commons to respond to it. A highly controversial session of Parliament. Um, So you are talking to someone who's been at the centre of things for so long at the moment that it's all happening, um, as well as obviously wanting to get his view of a, a broader view of history, his experience serving in the Thatcher and major governments particularly, a bit of his experience with the Cameron government, And of course, as two fans of Nottingham Forest, a brief chat about Brian Clough, but um, I, I slightly indulged myself there. But he is, he is exactly as you would expect him to be. Really funny, so wise, and just handles it all with such good nature that it was reassuring speaking to him. I mean, also deeply worrying because he's very honest about the problems he thinks we face. But he has a natural optimism and cheeriness that you think, well, if he's still smiling, maybe maybe we'll all be okay. But I don't want to ruin any of it. It was, oh, man. I, obviously, there is, I love every guest who comes on, but there are certain guests. It was the same with Michael Heseltine, where... And it's not just that they've maybe been around a bit longer, but the ones that have really been at the top end for so long... And maybe it's just about when you're growing up, but obviously as a child, Ken Clark's one of the first politicians I remember. And he was always in a senior position. He was, you know, stood for the Conservative leadership three times. And that was when they were in opposition. When he was in government, he was one of the most powerful people in the country. And even though um, I was never a Conservative I always liked him. Now, maybe that's because he was a Nottingham MP. Maybe that's because he's a forest fan. I think it's more that. He's just a really likeable bloke. And it's really interesting to hear what his politics are and where they come from. Um, anyway, anyway, I'm just waffling on. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and also, yes, I'm doing two London shows of Brexit Pursued by a Bear, one on the 6th of October at the wonderful South Bank Centre, i the 12th of October at the Wonderful King's Place. And you can find ticket links to both of those in the show notes. And also the Christmas Party Special is now on sale. It's on the 18th of December at the Bloomsbury Theatre this year. And uh, MP4 are confirmed. And I have a very lovely surprise to be able to announce as soon as possible for that show. Um, so, yes, the... Ticket links to all those shows are in the, in the show notes, however, you watch uh, or consume this. Um, so, I am going to shut up for now and uh, leave you in the hands of King Clark. Thank you very much. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Quiet week. <laughs> Holy fuck. That's most. I never knew that the end of the world would be so entertaining. I mean, I don't know how people. Feel. I, I just, uh, uh, I just, I have to say, obviously hating and loving it in equal measure. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been to the political party before. Wee! Uh, welcome welcome, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Wee! Excellent. Welcome, uh, newcomers. Tonight we have a man. I mean, my God, of all the nights to be talking to. Oh man. Oh my God. Potentially our next prime minister. <laughs> this is so exciting. Oh my God. Anyway, I mean it's all, it's obviously what is going on is awful, but it's great television as well. Really, uh, really brilliant television. So it turns out that Boris Johnson uh, lied to the Queen. I mean, I don't think we can rule out the fact he might have tried to shag her. <laughs> he did bow very low. Too rude at the start, fair dues. Uh, if, you, if you're a follower of the Church of England, of course, the Queen is God's representative on Earth. I mean, this is basically lied to God. I won't rule him out sat there in limbo going, oh, you know, come on, I, I know I do accept the, the judgement of St. Peter, but I, I know I do disagree. I, I, I think we can, I think if Satan is open to doing a deal, uh, then we should, we should do that before October 31st. He's also had to answer questions, and hasn't answered questions yet, about his relationship with a pole dancing model uh, called Jennifer Arcury uh, who received thousands of pounds in public money um, after he started hanging around with her as Mayor of London. Um, apparently he was nipping around to her East London flat, whilst Mayor, for what she has described as technology lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Explains why his hair was always so ruffled, I suppose. He was at the UN as well. Yes, I mean, what was incredible was he decided to be in New York on the day that the Super- he knew the Supreme Court were going to return their judgement. So it looked bad to be out of the country anyway. He's at the UN and behaves like nothing is going on. Uh, nothing bad is going on. He, he delivers his speech. I don't know if anyone saw it, where he says uh, he starts talking about artificial intelligence. So, uh, we, we need to, as a as a planet, uh, come to a a, a view on what AI. Uh, will AI bring opportunities? Uh, will it bring robots that can care for and wash our elderly, or will it send pink-eyed Terminators back from the future to <laughs> obliterate the human race? Which one do you think it is? has <laughs> okay, the terminator's got pink eye? I mean, that's a medical problem anyway. Second, I mean, this is a prime minister. Anyway, even without the Supreme Court judgment, that goes to the UN, his first speech to the UN, and that's the shit he's coming out with. We put him in the canon of some of our prime ministers. Gladstone, my mission is to pacify Ireland. Churchill, never before in the field of human conflicts has so much been owed to so many by so few. Boris Johnson, and what if the future sends back sexy pool-dancing robots to (laughs) seduce married, blonde British men. I learned about it in some technology lessons. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is a bloke. I mean, this is what is incredible, obviously, about the situation we're now in. It's about that on all sides, it's chaos. And Boris Johnson isn't just uh, been found to have broken the law of the Supreme Court. This one is a security risk. MI6 think our own Prime Minister is a security risk because in their view, he's been such a shagger and will continue to be, this leaves him open to blackmail by a hostile foreign power. Now, all I would say is what MI6 have completely underestimated is this. How do you blackmail a man? With no shame. <laughs> what well, the Russians gonna say to him? Give us 30 billion quid or we destroy your reputation. Yeah, yeah I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> turns out it's part of the attraction, so I... Uh, yeah. It's a security risk, though. It's a security risk to each and every single one of us as British citizens. Should we go on holiday? Nazaneen Sagari-Ratcliffe can tell you that. She'd been in prison for two years in Iran because when he was Foreign Secretary, he said the one thing he was told not to say. Line one of her defence, she worked for Thomson Reuters, was that I was in Iran. I was on holiday. I was at no point teaching journalists. And as Foreign Secretary, he got involved. He said, oh, the Iranians must release. Uh, Nazanin. Uh, all she was doing... All she was doing was teaching journalists, made up the one thing you were told not to say. Never call that bloke as a character witness. No, no, no. I can assure the court, by the way, it's pleased to be back. I uh, can assure the court uh, that uh, no, 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 Mr. Ford I uh, would never have punched this man in the face. Uh, if, if anything, uh, he wouldn't have stopped. Uh, he possesses a volcanic, vampiric rage. Uh, and, and had he punched punch this man in the face, uh, you'd almost certainly be dead. Yeah, if anything, you made the situation worse. I mean, think about the man we've now got as our Prime Minister's security risk to himself, to us collectively as individuals. I mean, with Nazanin Gary Ratcliffe, one of two things has happened. Either our prime, the Managed Now our Prime Minister wrongly identified a British civilian as being a spy and cost her a liberty, or the Managed Now Prime Minister blew the cover of a British spy. Now, if our own Prime Minister is going to start uncovering our operatives abroad, the Bond films are going to be very different under Boris. <laughs> They're gonna be short films. ding 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 uh, sorry, your Prime Minister here, I gave your location to the Iranians. Uh, you will be executed uh, within the next 30 seconds. I'm uh, sorry. Uh but... Anyway. What the fuck? 30 seconds and I'm dead? What the hell is going on? What about the Russian girl I've got back at the hotel? Yeah, too late? Ah, uh, I've already shagged up. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my word. He's going to deliver a no-deal Brexit. Apart from whatever happens next, no-deal Brexit is currently the most likely outcome. That's what the bookings are saying this week. No-deal Brexit is the most likely outcome. Uh, And you've got all these people out there, a lot of Tory MPs, promoting a no-deal Brexit that they don't understand. Andrea Jenkins was on Politics Live the other week. She said, look, if we leave without a deal, we can trade with the EU on WTO rules like everybody else does. And Joe Coburn said, all right, who else does? And she went, "Well, (laughs) well... (laughs) you <laughs> have to look further into that, won't I? Yes you will Andrea, you should look further into it first before you try to convince the rest of us of it. The logic of it, officer, officer, arrest this man, he's a murderer, is he? Well, I don't fucking know, do I? Do your job mate, I've got too much on as it is. I mean, by the way, five countries trade with the EU on WTO rules. They are Kazakhstan, North Korea, Russia, Cuba, and Venezuela. So that's Corbyn on board. And the backstop, it doesn't matter whether we've got a deal or without a deal. The big problem that they still haven't squared, and they're sending all these non-papers over to the years is about, is about the backstop, is what they want is to be able to get out of the backstop, have a time limit or whatever it is. Whether we leave with a deal or without a deal, no deal or not, the government has created a list of three priorities around the backstop that Boris Johnson agrees with as much as Theresa May did, that cannot be delivered. It's one of the most incredible lists ever drawn up in history because each demand on the list immediately contradicts the one before it. It's absolutely undeliverable. The first demand is this. We are definitely leaving the single market and the customs union. Fine. That involves a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. The second demand. No hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Right, okay. The effect of that is that Northern Ireland stays in a different customs arrangement with the Republic. The final demand. Northern Ireland cannot stay in a separate customs arrangement with the Republic. Well, I can't deliver that. You fucked it. I'm not saying, right, I want you to get me a pet it must bark, have feathers, and be a cat. <laughs> Look, that's impossible. I can, I can do one of those bulbs with staples and glue. Two of those things. <laughs> and the way they talk about it, making it so easy. Just the other week on the anniversary of Apollo 11, where Boris said, oh, yeah, "If, if we can get, by the way, yeah, men from Earth, uh, uh, put them on the moon uh, and, and uh, get them back onto." I and mean, uh, get them back. If we can put men on the moon and get them back, then surely we can find uh, we can find a solution to the Northern Ireland backstop. Now those two challenges aren't in any way related. There's no legacy technology from the moon landings that will help you solve an administrative political problem on the island. There's, no, there's not anything... You might as well have come up and said, you, oh, you, you know, if, if, if the Druids could build Stonehenge I should be able to lick my own elbow. <laughs> uh, no! One doesn't affect the other at all. And now he's spending a hundred million quid. 100, you may have seen the billboards and the leaflets already. A hundred million pounds promoting a no-deal Brexit to the British public to try and get us ready for October the 31st. Now, you'll have seen the ad campaign. It doesn't contain any pertinent facts because the facts about a no-deal Brexit are awful. The Office of Budget Responsibility says, in the event of a no-deal, we enter a minimum one-year recession. The Bank of England says, in the event of no-deal, unemployment could double and hit 2.6 million people. Just in terms of some of the stuff that's been leaked under Operation Yellowhammer, multiple motorways on the south of England will be commandeered by the army and turned into lorry parks. The M20 uh, and the M26, I think, have already been earmarked uh, to become lorry parks. Now, an extra two-minute border check at the border adds seven miles to motorway tailbacks. Four minutes, 14 miles to motorway tailbacks. Six minutes, lots of miles to motorway tailbacks. (laughs) The whole of the south of England is going to be gridlocked if we leave without a deal on October 31st. Imagine the traffic reports in a no-deal Brexit Britain. Traffic still non-moving northbound and southbound on the M1, M5, M8, M20, M25 and M26. Some of those tailbacks should start to clear within the next four to five years. We are getting some reports that truckers at the front of that queue have been waiting three years have already started to drink their own urine, so no change there. Don't worry. You could win a day's supply of fresh drinking water. It's all part of our no-meal, no-deal giveaway. And don't forget that just in time, re-release for this Christmas, just to keep you company on some of those long, long tailbacks. He's reworded it and re-released it. It's Chris Rear, and I'm stuck in traffic drinking my own piss for Christmas. <laughs> some of the other effects of a no-deal Brexit. We're going to lose legal protection from dangerous electrical products if we leave without a deal. We weren't told this in the referendum. Going to Argos now isn't so much to furnish your flat to cry for help. Could be buying exploded toasters. The whole thing's a nightmare. Medicine. We import 37 million packs of medicine from the EU every month. In the event of a no deal, there is the potential that none of that gets through. Uh, GPs already telling their patients to give them five to 12 months' notice for any medication they might need. Now, given that most of us don't know when we're going to get ill, that's just a shot in the dark. Yeah, hello, doctor. Yeah, Could you uh, get me some uh, stuff in for September next year, please? Yeah, uh, just some morphine, some gauze, and about four pints of A negative blood, yeah. I just got a feeling I'm going to get a kick in. <laughs> Why? I'm Jewish and I'm going to the Labour Party conference. <laughs> more of that on the way, brace yourself. Inf- I mean, some of the other implications are incredible. Infidelity is going to increase by 35%. It's true, I read it in the Sunday Express. According <laughs> to a website called Illicit Encounters, during a recession, people are more likely to cheat on their husbands and wives. And they reckon a no-deal Brexit will trigger the worst recession in living memory. And 35% of people are going to start cheating on each other. Now, as a proportion of tonight's audience, that's probably everyone in this section here. People who, by the way, make me feel sick. <laughs> Another issue we're going to have, I mean, obviously the Prime Minister is included in these stats. Uh, he accounts for about 12% of that infidelity. Uh, the, uh, the other issue we have, we're going to run out of sperm. Not because of that, because UK sperm banks are over-reliant on foreign donations. We receive 3,000 donations from Denmark alone every year. Now, I don't know how many individuals that is. Could just be one guy churning it out. <laughs> Some Viking, anyway. The, UK, uh, the chief executive of the UK Sperm Bank Association said in the event of a no-deal Brexit, sperm may not be able to pass through the border. Now, <laughs> that's kind of what sperm does, but he also said in the event of a no-deal Brexit, we will be left with no alternative but to produce our own. <laughs> That's right, no longer a filthy habit, it is your patriotic duty. I mean, that is not that is not a, a vision of Britain we were sold during the referendum. This could be our lives on November the 1st this year. Sat at home ill because we can't get any medication. You can't drive anywhere because everywhere's a lorry park. Your wife's cheating on you with some trucker of the lay-by of the M26. You're sat down going blind because you've been wanking into exploding toasters. <laughs> Never put that on the side of a fucking bus today. I? I mean, Labour's, Labour's uh, position. This is part of the problem, part of the reason why the Tories can get away with, uh, with delivering a no deal Brexit, potentially, is because Labour in a real uh, state. In Labour's conference this week, I don't know if you saw Jeremy Corbyn's speech yesterday. Uh, I mean, it was a speech he didn't write, it was a speech he barely read uh, aloud. He was reading it out of one eye. I mean, the intonation of it, I don't know if you saw any of it live. It was, he it. it. was like watching Ron Burgundy deliver. <laughs> we will deliver a referendum? It was like he put the whole thing through Google Translate. <laughs> we will nationalise the energy industry and I would like a taxi to the old town. <laughs> now, he said something else in his speech I thought was hilarious. And he said this line with particular passion. He said, no one should be forced to work beyond the age of 75. Which at the age of 70 is basically a a coded cry for help. Uh, He really looked at John McDonnell when he said it. Um, Keir Starmer gave an interview, friend of the show, friend of the show. Keir Starmer gave uh, an interview afterwards where he said uh, he had mixed feelings about Jeremy's speech, which is fair, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it was bad. On the other hand, it was shit. So I think we all had mixed feelings about it. Uh, Labour's Brexit position still hasn't changed. They've moved the policy on a bit, the principle of it, and there remains this hasn't worked uh, as a piece of manipulation. And this was genuinely their plan, and still is. And this is their whole sort of plan to to win the next general election. What they're going to do, they're going to tell Leave voters what they want to hear, and at the same time, they're going to tell Remain voters what they want to hear, and then everyone is going to vote Labour. What they've underestimated is this. The Leave voters could hear what they were saying to the Remain voters, (laughs) and the Remain voters... You could hear what they were saying to the Leave voters. (laughs) It wasn't so much Robin Peter to pay Paul as Robin Peter and Robin Paul, then calling them both agents of Israel. I mean, think about where Corbyn is. His acolytes have been on social media this week saying he's now in the centre ground. Corbyn's now at the centre ground. Jeremy Corbyn is a man who's been allergic to the centre ground his whole life. He would be offended if you ever called him a centrist. And yet, for the first time in his entire existence, he's tried to find the centre ground and he picks the only issue in human history that does not have a centre ground. There's no centre ground on Brexit. It's binary. You're either in or you're out. There are no semi-Brexiteers out there. No one out there going, can we just leave Belgium? <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, now going to uh, prorogue this uh, event until 20 minutes time, where you can all, I mean, try and drink as much as Shami Chakrabarti did. Uh, if you haven't seen the video, go on Twitter. Oh, shit-faced. Um, so maybe don't get as drunk. But uh, in the break, if you can get on the wifi, look at it. Amazing, anyway. Uh, I Obviously, in the second half, am about to interview someone that I've wanted to interview for a very long time. And was meant to be on the show earlier in the year. The timing of it could not be better. And he is on the brink, genuinely on the brink, of being our next Prime Minister. So this is absolutely thrilling. Um, I'm not sure whether he agrees with that or not. But I shall find out in the second half for now. As always, you've been such a wonderful crowd. Welcome back to this new series of The Political Party. I shall see you in 20 minutes. For now, I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have uh, a a true uh, legend of of, of British politics. The the father of the House, a man who has served in the House of Commons since 1970. Someone who's uh, absolutely, uh, wow indeed, uh, one of the longest serving cabinet ministers in the entirety of British history. Uh, A true legend of politics, someone who has uh, admirers on all sides of the divide, has always been the case and I'm sure even more so uh, now. who knows what is going to happen in the next few days, but we might be talking to our next Prime Minister. <laughs> Please welcome Ken Clarke.
0: Yeah. Well, there we are. <laughs> yeah, i made it. <laughs> oh,
1: you go that side,
0: right. That's you want me, me on your left, do you? <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs>
1: <laughs> for the early time tonight so um, obviously this we're, we're recording this for a podcast um, so people may be listening to this in the next two or three days so good luck be, to them mm-hmm. just want to be uh, i want to address you in the correct way uh prime minister so <laughs> uh, i mean do you,
0: makes but, me nostalgic people used to say that seriously you know years ago <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean do you feel that um obviously you had ambitions to be prime minister at least three times Um, in in 9701 and 2005. I mean, do you feel that actually this is tantalisingly close now, the
0: possibility? No, I don't. Uh, I I went away on holiday, uh, deliberately shut myself off. I was in Norway from all kind of news. uh, Got off a plane when I flew back from Bergen uh, and I tried to pick up a British newspaper and Joe Swinson, uh, had set off, I saw the story was that I was about to be the next prime minister but two. And I, I thought, good grief, this takes me back a few years, you know, <laughs> and, and, and all that. Uh, and the trouble is, you know, as as in modern politics, everybody's more interested in personalities than they are about all these complicated issues. It's, it's, it's a bit of a comic footnote, actually. A most bizarre series of events have to take place to produce a government of national unity and me or Harriet Harman heading it up and all the rest of it. And actually, of all the subjects we should be discussing, it's about the most ridiculous. So it doesn't matter Tutney Dam, Dam who leads a government of national unity. What matters is does anybody have a clue what this government of national unity are all going to agree to do? And uh, so I, I, I thought it was a rather nice reintroduction to get back into the fray and all that. But now I haven't come here to make my bid. I've done that, been there. It's, it's a. No, no, no. Uh,
1: you, you talk about a whole series of ludicrous events having to take place, but at the moment they are so. Uh... Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think you can't get any sillier, and every day you're surprised <laughs> that some further bizarre turn has taken place. I quite agree.
1: So, what what is your analysis uh, and your reaction to the, the the Supreme Court judgment this week? I'm uh,
0: surprised, first of all. Uh, I, I was, I'm a very out-of-date lawyer, but I've been Lord Chancellor not too long ago, that was my last, almost last job at Wong, uh, but, but the, 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 so I am a lawyer, uh, and I've, all the lawyers who are more up-to-date and, you know, than me, all agree with me that it's highly unlikely that the Supreme Court would come to this decision. I, Brenda Hale, a great fan of her, she's a very nice woman, but I, I thought she and her colleagues would it, uh, they just would not take the step of getting into such a politically charged area. Their bailout. What I hoped was, they'd find reluctantly for the government, and then they'd come out with what a lawyer calls obiter dicta, all kinds of pronouncements about how, in a properly run country, these things should happen, and just to try and lay down a marker for the future. You see, so that was what I thought would happen. So when I just, and I never thought they'd be unanimous. Uh, so I was startled by the result. So that's my first earnest, out-of-date lawyer's uh, approach to it. But every other lawyer I know, I, I met one of the people who, pardon me, one, one of the barristers who acted for one of the people bringing the case. He didn't act for Gina, but anyway, I won't, I won't go further than that. Uh, and I, I discussed it with him earlier on when I wished him the best of luck. And I, I remembered I'd said to him, you know, I don't think you've got many feathers to fly with, really, but, you know, good luck and all that. And I think he was a little startled to find he'd won. But, 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 but <laughs> it's a very good job he has. I mean, I, can, I would defend it, because uh, I'm a great defender of an unwritten constitution, I so it's a good thing. But it depends on conventions, uh, all kinds of accepted ways of doing things, what British, government will, what British governments will do and what they won't do. Uh, and there's a kind of very British, kind of good chap rule you know, that runs through the whole thing. Well, all these weird political campaigning characters that Boris has surrounded himself with uh, have no time for parliament. they no don't know anything about government or anything of that kind and you know once they're thought, well, these are only conventions, oh damn that, we'll tear laws up you know we We were going to have a presidential system with no checks and balances, no parliament, no courts, you know just a wise president who will occasionally tell the cabinet what he's just done. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I'm being converted to a written constitution. And the Supreme Court has stepped in and obviously they were persuaded, you know, this is impossible. And I, I, I only defended it today, I got up today. The reaction of everybody to the judgment is depends on whether they're a Remainer or a Leaver, which is stupid, because as as Hale said, that's the one thing they weren't deciding. And I believe that's obviously the case. Um, But but the the, the, the truth is, if, if future governments had built on this, I might have enjoyed listening to the right wing of the Conservative Party going utterly berserk as Jeremy Corbyn, if he ever gets into government, which I don't think he ever will, but if they ever got into government, you know suddenly started deciding to send Parliament away because he hadn't got a majority uh, for some of his more outrageous uh, things. I mean, the right wing of the Conservative Party would go absolutely loony if a Labour government ever tried to send Parliament away simply because the majority in Parliament disagreed with their main policy. It was outrageous and it would have had to be corrected or it should have got completely out of hand. So it's a good thing, it's a very good thing. Sorry if I give you, I always give long answers. Oh no, it's good, <laughs> very good.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, what do you make of the reactions, particularly in Parliament today, of the Attorney General Geoffrey Cox and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson?
0: I uh, miss Boris, uh, I decided to have a break. I have sat in the chamber most of the afternoon. I, wondered, I particularly went in for the serious statement, which was on Iran. Uh, But nobody's taking notice of that. Uh, But I did was there for Geoffrey, and I enjoyed it enormously. It it was great. Other people were, some people were enraged by it, but it's amazing, you know. It's pre-Rumpel, it's it's a fantastic style. Actually, he's a good lawyer. Uh, Unlike, uh, well, there was a recent Lord Chancellor. Uh, Unlike some other politicians, in he said all the right things about the court, and the law, uh, and, and what the judgment was about, what it wasn't, and all that. But he has this marvelous 19th century, amazing style. And, and then he decided to get a bit political, which he's allowed to, and by that time, it was really arms fail, failing, you know, rolling tones, all the rest of it. Well. Rather depends on one's temperament. I thought this was hilarious. (laughs) Uh, But other people were deeply, deeply shocked. So I was left there. Boris, I kept waiting for Boris. The whole thing's gone on all afternoon, uh, and I was in for quite a lot of it. And because I was coming here, I finally decided, well, is Boris going to say anything new? Uh, And I thought, Highly unlikely, <laughs> uh, and uh, Jamie from my office has been trying to keep in touch with the because He's come here with me, but he—he he, was—he uh, uh, he was trying to keep me up to date. As far as I can see, he's just done said nothing new. He just ranted on about how he's—you know—he was only proroguing the house because he'd had a sudden thought. He had a, lots of policies to put in the Queen's speech <laughs> and all this, and then he started just carrying on about the joys of Brexit, and and. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn certainly seems to have said nothing new that he hasn't said umpteen times before. So I'm probably better off here. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh,
1: You once said it would be ludicrous to have Boris Johnson as Prime Minister.
0: Yeah, no, you're the first person to look that up. There there was this... (laughs) There there, 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 there was this occasion when I was chatting with my old friend Malcolm Rifkin when... Really, for two old sweats, we should have had more sense. The idea you can sit in the corner of a television studio when you've just done a thing, and be absolutely confident you can just have a chat together. Uh, and you know, they put a camera and a mic on us, and everybody reported me. Uh, he was asking my opinions of all the candidates. Uh, and I, rather notoriously, he asked me about Theresa May and I said, well, she's a bloody difficult woman. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I went on to say, but you and I work for Margaret Thatcher, for God's sake. <laughs> so, uh, it's pretty why I thought I was probably gonna vote for her. He asked me about Boris Johnson and I, People have pointed out to me, people who remember saying, that I did actually say, well, it's just ridiculous to think of Boris Johnson as Prime <laughs> <laughs> Minister. And nobody's quoted it back at me until you have this evening. But I uh, haven't changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, what really strikes me, I suppose, and many others watching it, is that you know, your whole life you get used to liking some Prime Ministers more than others. Yeah. and watching politicians that you didn't vote for, but saying, oh, well, actually, John Major seems like a really decent person.
0: Yeah.
1: Or Ken Clark seems like a really decent person. Boris Johnson, I suppose, in a way, because of Leave Remain, is able to reach into some Labour heartlands like Stoke and places like that and maybe mobilise people in a way that previous Conservative uh, Prime Ministers might not have been able to, but... Do you think he can command that genuine cross-party, you cross-country know. respect in the way that someone like John
0: Major Well, let, let me make it clear. I, I, I just made an unkind remark about Boris as Prime Minister. It's not personal. He's, he's good fun I his company. I, I never person, <laughs> I've never fallen out with anybody in my life, I, just because I politically disagree with him, and I don't always disagree with him. Uh, 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 and, uh, you know, he, and I, his private life, which you had fun with... I. I take the view, it has nothing to do with me, frankly, as I couldn't care less about that. Uh, but, but the, as the, the, uh, so I haven't fallen out with him personally, um, but, but the strategy he's following is as you describe, and uh, he, he is utterly, he appears utterly set in electoral terms on winning the white working class Brexit vote in the North and North Midlands, and seems content to sacrifice the home county's younger liberal vote in the south. Uh, And so everything is pitched at ousting Farage in all these labor seats in the north, some which are very vulnerable because the left behind industrial towns are protesting against the establishment in part by being overwhelmingly leave. Uh, and so he's, he's fighting, he's trying to outdo Farage. The, the whole parliament versus the people thing is taken straight from Brexit party campaigning of six months ago and, and literature. Uh, and seriously, I think it's, firstly, it's a rather s- cynical and shallow approach because the politics of Boris Johnson, insofar as he's got, any politics on any subject. Uh, it, 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 I do not match the inhabitants of Stoke-on-Trent and Barnsley and Hartlepool and so on. Uh, and it's already well saying you give up Guildford because you're gonna get Bishop Auckland and, and all this. Uh, but actually, maybe may be wishful thinking it's a gamble that isn't gonna come off I think Mr. Farage, who's the most successful prime minister of, of my generation. <laughs> uh, not prime minister, but politician. <laughs> complete, he's succeeded in probably completely changing the role of Britain in the world. Mm. Um, but, but he's a good runner. Uh, 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 and uh, uh, The idea that you know, he's gonna get all these Brexit votes and sweep the north of England and take the rest of it, he'll take some. He's won Mansfield in my county. And other unlikely first time places, ever. first time ever I used to fight Mansfield and very proud to keep the majority below twenty thousand against me <laughs> uh, but, but he 's not going to repeat that across the line. I think mm-hmm. Nigel Farage will beat him, uh, and he won 't get an electoral pact with Farage as, you know Farage is quite clear that it 's all right he 'll have a pact so long as he 's given a clear run at sixty to eighty seats in the north and the midlands and F- Farage. If there was a pact, you know, has a good chance of winning quite a lot of those. But the Conservatives aren't getting very much in return uh, for that. Uh, so I, I disapprove of all this. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I do think it's going to misfire. But I mean, the, the policy at times, until it all collapsed when the House of Commons defeated it, was plainly to outdo Farage. And that's where the government was rapidly going, competing for his boats in order to gain seats from Labour in the north. Terrifying half the Labour Party in the process, but I'm not sure it's going to work. It, it, both
1: leaderships have deserted the centre ground and, and explicitly and quite proudly so. As someone who's often seen as a, a, a standard bearer for the centre ground, I mean, do you worry about the collapse of the centre, or is it, do you I worry about a
0: lot. I mean, the, 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 this is a, you made it a very cheery evening when you started, it, and I'm a naturally optimistic, laid back kind of character, but, I mean, really, we ought to be deeply depressed uh, <laughs> that the system has come where it is. Uh, there is still a big centre ground, but I don't, I'm not one of those who says, well, really, still politics is fought out of the centre. The, 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 the anger, the polarisation of opinion is at least as bad amongst the public as it is in Parliament. Parliament accurately really reflects the public mood with with polarized views, a lot of anger about, uh, a great deal of protest and and no majority for anything. Uh, Angry Leavers who think they're in the majority, angry Remainers who think they're in the majority, uh, some soft Brexiteers think they're in the middle, and a whole lot of people who are fed up with the whole thing. Uh, And out of this chaos, our traditional two-party system, veteran like me is very used to the center-right, center-left, few percentage poll change and income, you know, moderate social democrat labor to replace uh, one-nation Tories running the country. It's miles away from where we are and it has produced two of the most unlikely candidates for leadership that you could <laughs> ever have imagined. I mean, if the choice for Prime Minister, I don't think it is the choice for Prime Minister, any choice for Prime Minister, you know, seriously, after the next election, you're likely to have a hung Parliament, I would guess. Um, but, you know, the idea that the two parties present as potential Prime Ministers, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> If you'd told me that was going to happen 10 years ago, I'd have used the phrase you reminded me of, and utterly ridiculous. <laughs> uh, that, that they, they are the, the main parties' alternatives for leadership, but it's symptomatic of a lot of other things going wrong. And I, anyway, I'm giving a long answer again, but it's gone wrong in every other Western democracy, as you quite rightly said. And Trump, Brexit, Boris Johnson, Marine Le Pen, Salvini, alternative for Deutschland. I could go on, it is repeated in every other Western democracy. They're not functioning in the way they function for the vast majority of my political life. And there was a very angry mood of protest and and dislocation out there. And the old big block of center-right politicians, big block of center-left politicians, taking turns when one of them is made of pigs here and then the others take over. I'm not sure we'll ever go back to that, but it is seriously threatened right now.
1: Part of how we got here was the Conservative Party's endless desire to talk about Europe, and it was something that you hmm. really stood All against time hmm. and time and time again. <laughs> um, why, and, and obviously you'll you have good friends and, and colleagues that, that, that share these views. What is it about our relationship with Europe that has so animated the Tory Party for so long?
0: Well, it's my entire, dominated my entire political life. Uh, I became an activist when I was a student. And I, I decided that... It took some time deciding which party would have the privilege of having me uh, as a <laughs> member. But my time decided, I joined the Conservatives, very, mainly because they were modernising, but uh, because Macmillan had applied to join the European community. Uh, and that divided the party, uh, divided the Labour Party, and it became one of the animating themes of my first career, whole career. My first parliament... I was in the Government Whips office in the Heath government, uh, helping organize the majority for our joining the european community split us badly uh, the party had a nervous breakdown uh, we we had to defeat our imperialist wing led by Enoch Powell uh, by winning the votes of the Jenkinsites uh, and the pro Europeans who were defying their party to come over and support us uh, and It's run through my entire political career. It nearly died out in the late 1980s. The the country of the party seemed to settle down. It's the same conflict all the way through. I can bore you by getting even before my own political time. There are those, it was the imperialist wing of my party, there are those who are most comfortable with the role they always saw us in, what it used to be like, uh, Dunkirk spirit, Britain alone, that's the real Britain, and upset by the pace of change in the modern world. And, and then there are those who happen to be thriving and doing quite well in the modern world, globalized economy, smaller political world, you know, they love it, there are lots of them in London. Uh, 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 and they always gone along with, you know, enhancing our role in the world by being one of the leaders in the European bloc and joining in a modern free trade, globalized economy. And it's a huge gulf, and it, I was old enough to remember the big controversy when I was an activist student was my great hero, Ian Macleod was giving away the empire. Britain's role was being sacrificed to people who weren't ready for it. We were betraying our kith and kin led by Smithy uh, in southern Rhodesia and things that nobody here. The British have expunged all this from their memory. The same bitter battle went on. My, my hero, Ian Macleod, who did all that, uh, gave independence to all these African countries that we could not afford to maintain our military presence or anything else in, uh, was sent to Coventry personally by half the Conservative Party because he was giving the empire away. And that, Try, more, it, it moved on to become a resistance to this anyway, getting associated closely and integrating our economy with the people we'd fought in the war. You know? The British no longer learn any history uh, about uh, the empire or the Commonwealth, that's all expunged from our memory. Uh, the British have a curiously British memory of the Second World War, uh, particularly the older generation. Uh, and that feeds through to Britain proud and alone and not getting mixed up with these continental things. That's these are the underlying big things, I think. And those who hate the pace of change and think it used to be better, and those who like the pace of change, not surprisingly, they tend to be the younger, the better educated, the enterprising and so on, who just think Britain's got to play its role in the modern world. And uh, I'm typical of my generation. I've stuck in the second for some reason. That, as you can, and the Labour Party has gone through a slightly parallel thing. The left of the Labour Party, nowadays the Corbynistas, they're always reactionary. They're just against change. Uh, there was a golden era in the late 1940s from which we should never depart I remember that's a tedious time of of, of George's and everything else, and and the the, the gray bureaucratic phase in our history, very important things were done. Uh, But the left always resist change. The the Jenkinsites, today's social democrats, uh, they don't reject the modern world, they too want to move on with it. That underlies the whole thing. I don't remember since Suez, which influenced me in my formative days when I was a politically addicted sixth former, I I don't remember the public having blazed apart into angry warring camps uh, as much as they have again now. So there we are, that's a rather abstract interpretation. Gets us away from the crackpot events of day to day at the moment. (laughs) That underlines it all. Yeah, absolutely underlines it all. Those people who would feel happier, if we were entirely on our own, back running our own affairs and somehow detached and a bit switched off from the, what is becoming a frightening pace of change, <coughs> which includes the old industrial white working class of the North, uh, the labor equivalent, uh, and those who can't think we gotta live with this. It's the modern world, for God's sake, what on earth are we going into isolation for? Why on earth are we putting new trade barriers between ourselves and Europe and all the rest of it? Can't we do quite well? Aren't we doing quite well already in the single market, which it was British governments that created anyway in the first place?
1: You talk with fondness about the Jenkinsites, and in your book you, you talk with fondness about uh, Shirley Williams and Tony Crossland. Is it fair to say that had you been born uh, maybe five years later or five years earlier, you might have, because you joined the Labour Club at university
0: and joined the other clubs, but you I joined actually... a lot at first. <laughs> then... But you could have been a Labour politician. Uh, But it could be, but the Labour Party uh, was, to say, it it was reactionary. Even that great man, Gates, girl, was reactionary. Uh, And the Conservative Party, practically, all the active politicians, the ones who went into politics, uniquely, probably, from my time at university, we all went to the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party were the modernisers. It was Rab Butler, really, uh, but Macmillan, who was a wily old uh, so-and-so, and MacLeod, and Maudling, and Heath, And there was this cause. Uh, The cause was modernizing Britain. Uh, But Heath uh, was the leading advocate, following uh, at the instructions of Macmillan, who was equally keen of moving to become a European power. It was a political venture. It was also made clear it was political to actually give us a role in the world which worked. We were one of the three leading big powers in the European bloc, and of the three, we were the one with the closest links with America. And that gave us, at the time of Suez, we've been a laughing stock, absolute laughing stock. Our foreign policy was to, because of our, our, our role in the world, running a canal and <coughs> occupying a strip of Egyptian territory, we had a right to defend our route to India, uh, which. Uh, Empire, old boy, it was called the Commonwealth nowadays, but we we, we were very important, we kept our route to India. And uh, an abortive, ludicrous, go-it-alone military regiment changed the minds of a lot of people like me. Uh, And uh, now the Labour Party was on the wrong side. The Labour Party was only the Jenkinsites, pro-European. Don't forget the Labour Party then fell into the hands uh, of of, of, of people who became increasingly anti-European, left-wing, uh, and reactionary, in my opinion. It's, it's the Labour Party. There's always been a part of the Labour Party that can't get out of that.
1: Uh, you talk about modernisers. Um, Margaret Thatcher, probably one of the great Tory modernisers, probably the most yeah. prominent, certainly, uh, certainly post-war. Um, that modernity and modernisation programme, uh, whilst it was definitely modernising, also came at a great price as well. I mean, there must have been periods during the Thatcher period where Britain's uh, at the social <coughs> global events is, modernising, but the, there was a price to pay for some
0: of that, perhaps. Uh, there the was, which you tried to mitigate. It, it, I mean, Margaret was, was a difficult woman. But the structural reforms that she presided over were necessary, and they were costly. Uh, unfortunately, we have not eliminated the price of it. But the idea, uh, which we might have stuck with, that my county will be full of coal mines in the 21st century was ludicrous, utterly ludicrous. This was a dying industry. The majority of the coal mines in the United Kingdom had been closed before Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. The to relate related things was all under Uh, the Wilson government and (coughs) Alf Robins, a leading Labour politician, was put in charge of the coal board and closed coal mines like there was no tomorrow because it was just a ludicrously over expensive source of energy for the country and it's a 19th century industry. Uh, And the idea is that, uh, that, that it required dramatic change and it required, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, market forces with a social conscience. Now, Margaret was all abrasive and aggressive and we flirted with the worst of, she flirted with the worst of some of them were ultra-libertarian free marketeers and so on, but not really, she did have a social conscience as well, though it wasn't always totally apparent. But they were necessary. Now, we thought we were mitigating the consequences. Every government of my lifetime has had uh, regional policies, industrial regeneration policies, and all the rest of it, which were going to help the places where the change was most erratic turn around. Now, unfortunately, that's tricky, and it's defeated everybody, and that's still coming to place. But the idea that we could have done without the Thatcher reforms, that we could have stayed with, well, Italy has finally changed, but we could have stayed with all those continental countries that, politically we were not able to do it, I think it would have been disastrous. We were becoming an industrial, la- uh, an economic laughing stock. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it, she gave us the courage of our convictions. Everybody, Until Margaret came along and the Conservative Party would have said, well, of course, it would be much better if we didn't have this bureaucratic state-owned section of the economy, if life was not dominated by the trade unions, and if ministers did not have to spend 90% of their time on industrial relations. But then we would say... If you weren't careful, as my, my great admirer of people like Jim Pryor always said, oh, you can't do that, it'd upset the trade unions, it's not possible in the real world, old boy. Well, she didn't understand all that, so she gave us all the courage of our convictions, and, well, it was you know pretty lively the whole damn <laughs> time. The changes were desirable, Mitigating the consequences of a world where the economy is changing at an ever accelerating rate now has so far proved ever so slightly beyond the range of most politicians. Also true in every Western country. Trump appeals to the left behind in the Rust Belt states and the more difficult rural areas And those who resent the pace of change want to go back to America proud isolationist alone. I won't go through all the others I listed. It's the same in every case. But the idea, oh, the answer was just to stay stuck in the 1960s, which we're going back 50 years if we leave with no deal. Going back to the 1960s is in my biased opinion, a total illusion. And to blame all the problems on the fact that Margaret Thatcher made us going for essential structural reforms, idiotic. There are several European countries, that i want the people, they need a Margaret Thatcher. You, you won't lift Italy and Spain, and Spain's doing better, uh, Italy, Greece. Ideally, they need a Margaret Thatcher. The trouble is, only in extreme circumstances will an electorate <coughs> ever vote for a Margaret Thatcher. Because the electorate, on the whole, don't like, most of the electorate don't like change. So, usually, when you have a policy that involves radical change, the policy are always, the public are always against it.
1: In terms of your relationship with Margaret Thatcher, uh, did it change during that period of her, her leadership and would she seek counsel from you even though? Towards the end, perhaps, that, that that distance was slightly
0: marked. Well, she ran a cabinet government. So did John Major. It's practically extinct now. I don't think the present cabinet's allowed to talk about anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but, but, but it's, that's been growing since Blair, really, since it, they started it. But it gets worse and worse. Uh, she ran a collective government. Uh, and nobody, you know, people are very surprised to hear that. But, but we, we, everything, all the policies, had to have the approval of cabinet. The cabinet would agree policies in cabinet committees and then resolve them. We had, we had much cabinet sat for a long times, you know, a whole morning every week. In Heath's day, it was two mornings a week, but we sometimes went over on when he got a lot on. Uh, and that was to try to get cabinet consent mm. to policies. And Margaret, you know, was in the minority sometimes. Um, she didn't like being in the minority. Uh, she spoke for 50% of the time, uh, you know, and she always started discussions So I make it quite clear what she thought she you know, we all should agree to. Well, I saw her lose uh, arguments, uh, sometimes with rather bad grace. Uh, I persuaded her to change her mind on things. She had one-to-one rows with her sometimes if, as a cabinet minister, you wanted to bring things forward and it wasn't as she wanted. And the great thing about arguing with Margaret which you had to remind yourself afterwards sometimes, <laughs> uh, was, the only thing you were arguing about was what is in the public interest? What is the right thing to do? If you remember the phrase, it was conviction politics. She never read newspapers. She, she, the idea the opinion polls were against you didn't interest her. Uh, she, we, we, we never had a, a major policy which was ahead in the opinion polls. Uh, I, never, I never implemented, and I, I was with her all the way through, shadow and uh, minister, then cabinet for a long time. Uh, I never had a policy to implement which the most of the public agreed with. Uh, uh, but what we did was politicians are meant to have views on the national interest. You're trying to make a bit of a difference to the good. You do what you think is right and then you argue the toss about it, and you try to persuade people why you're doing it, and you, you know, all the rest of it. You've got to do it in the first half of a parliament, (coughs) because with any luck, if it starts to work properly, if you haven't made a pig's ear, the public change their view, and they start changing their mind. So the Thatcher government, every term, was hugely unpopular in my mid-term, the first session, we dropped down to about 18% in the polls, I think. The Labour Party split in two, and both halves of it were ahead of us. That's true. That's literally true. And we got elected. Then you turned your attention to getting another term and having a go at getting in. Well, there couldn't be a greater contrast with politics nowadays, which increasingly over the last 15 years has been, can we get good headlines next Tuesday in the Daily Telegraph? That is what it's all aimed at now. And opinion polls are all over the place. You, know. you just can't possibly run a country on opinion polls. Uh, you're meant to have political skills. to implement. You're elected to implement what you believe to be in the public interest, defend it, argue for it, And with any luck and the initial reactions over, public will start coming through. I mean, eventually, when Blair brought the Labour Party back to power, he made no attempt to reverse any of the Thatcher reforms. And indeed, my uh, health (coughs) reforms, Ken Baker's education reforms, were taken up with enthusiasm, were taken much further than Ken and I could ever dared Hope we could get away with. Uh, and that, that, was, that was the Thatcher government. Ready
1: to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Describing government in that way, it sounds very attractive, particularly now. But you have to have you have to have some idea of public opinion, uh, uh, oh. and Poll Tax proved that was that it was you know a, a policy was. She was that's when, when she lost. Start. That's
0: when she lost it. Yeah. The trouble with the Poll Tax it was totally impractical. Uh, she just there should be a maximum permitted dose for leadership of a party. Ten years is the maximum. Uh, it's bound to end in tears if you just go on forever. And she did begin. She reached a stage where she she was no longer the collective stuff was going. I mean, she was going by the seat of her pants. <laughs> The days when her judgment usually in the end coincided with what went right, she was losing all that. And she got obsessed with the wretched poll tax, which was a crazy policy, uh, and plowed on with it. But she was getting, you know, she'd, you, you wear out, I'd say 10 years as the maximum permitted dose, really, that, that, after that. It's almost impossible not to have made so many enemies and beginning to lose, get off the rails. It's time for somebody else to have a go. So she did lose it in the end, you know. Do you think Boris but, but, will do 10 years? But the poll tax never... <laughs> 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 well, he might amaze us all, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the most, uh, going back to history, the most unlikely people have, uh, in the end, uh, done quite well, but, uh, 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 but Boris's approach is very different to, to Margaret, so I think it doesn't <laughs> resemble it. he could be a very short-lived prime minister.
1: When you think about the two big kind of rows of the of the, of the Thatcher area the miners' strike and the poll tax, you're an MP in Nottinghamshire, which affected by the mm. miners' strike, an area deeply affected by the poll tax. I mean, you were going to watch. Nottingham Forest and Notts County and, and, and still do go and watch them. Always have, yeah. Football in that period was, uh, uh, I mean, football grounds were far more robust places than they are. Well, old. we
0: had that phase of, of, of uh, football violence, yes. Did yeah, you get involved? In uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you had, you had to try dodging it. Uh, that was the thing. I, I mean, trying to avoid it, I used to get, take my children to football matches and you did have to be careful where you went and all this kind of thing. It's because uh, it, it came at times, it got quite fixated, uh, football violence. But did you get
1: any abuse from fans? Did you ever worry about going to football matches in that period?
0: Uh, not for political abuse, no. No, 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 I didn't ever get that. But, uh, I mean, just the fact that if you've got kids with you, you just have to make sure. I, I did once find myself with my daughter and one of her friends between two warring camps. That was actually not at Nottingham, that was Aston Villa. Uh, I can't remember who the other team were, but there was a gang, large numbers from both sides, preparing to have a pawn shop. Uh, and I'd accidentally wandered between the two sides. <laughs> uh, but, but because I got the two kids with me, uh, we, we just, they, they, they let us go through before they uh, came, got into the real entertainment for the afternoon, as far as they were concerned. A uh, my last strike is more serious. That was the worst, that was the worst social crisis of my lifetime the miners' strike now that, that did bring things to a head and was the, the cultural implications of all that were quite important that was a real moment of social tension very divisive and in Nottingham very apparent even in my own constituency uh, because we had working miners uh, and pickets poured in uh, to Nottinghamshire uh, and were defended by police who were poured in and I went to Mansfield at one time during the strike, and I went through a police checkpoint, you know, before I could get in doing a political meeting. In my own constituency, I had one pit left uh, before the strike uh, at Cockgrave, uh, and uh, that was... Miners from Kent were coming up and doing the picketing, um, because that was a very militant area, Kent. Uh, Policemen came from Essex uh, to control it, uh, and they occasionally had the old pawn shop in the main street of the village. Uh, all my constituents went to work over the fields around the back and, and uh, the pick went on working as normal. But the underlying tensions, including the old, they were being roused, the old class tensions, the old regional tensions, and uh, above all the tensions between the politically, mo- I mean, I'm getting into bias now, but it was very politically motivated, hardcore left of the trade union movement and, and the government was a critical time, which you know, the, the, I think, I personally think, obviously the country came through it and we healed ourselves from that. The present tensions are different, but uh, these tensions are going to take a few years to get out of, I think.
1: Uh, we, we're both uh, supporters of Nottingham Forest, and we, we shouldn't indulge that in a, uh, certainly not outside of Nottingham, but um, uh, Forest obviously managed for a long time by Brian Clough, who I gather you had a friendship with, you know, he was a he well,
0: was. Him, yeah, I knew him quite well. Yeah, was, I mean, he, not, was not, he wasn't a great mate or anything, but no, no. two of us no, knew each other quite well. He was quite political.
1: Well, he was a very left-wing.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you probably know the stories I always tell about Brian, if you think me because he read my book. But I think i put him in there. I can't remember what I put in the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, 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 he, was, he was quite left-wing. He was, very, he was offered the Labour candidature at Loughborough. Very wisely turned it down. He would have been a disastrous member of the Parliament. <laughs> but he, he, was, he, he was tempted but for, he went for a phase at one point of reading, leading demos outside by Saturday morning surgeries. Uh, and the same people every week, but with a different banner every week, a different cause, uh, would go marching past, shouting and all the rest of it, and cheering and all the rest I I, I I I did have a conversation with him got him out of it. I, I I said firstly, you know, could you knock it off, Brian? Because you're frightening some of the old ladies who come to see me, and we can't hear what the hell we're talking about inside. And anyway, at the moment. Uh, you know, your football club is doing no better than my government, <laughs> uh, 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 and I, I shall start getting together a demo before the matches, before I come <laughs> into the ground in uh, the afternoons. Anyway, I joked and talked him out of it. And the, the other thing I used to do with Brian was, uh, he always made a mess of buying overseas players when we became a big European club. Uh, and, and things like getting visas and, you know, work permits and all that, so particularly when I was home secretary, i get a funny call from Brian. Uh, could I sort out this or that and get a player in? But I, I, that, that meant I got to know him a bit. He was a remarkable football manager. Any fool can win trophies managing Arsenal or Manchester United or that. But to take a you know, bog standard Midland team, uh, and even in those days, and, and teams you know, could sometimes second division have a few years in the first division and go back again, going back to the old divisions. To take Derby County to the first division championship, fall out with them, <laughs> and at least by Leeds get picked up by us and take Nottingham Forest to the first division championship, and then to win two European Cups with Nottingham Forest. Uh, there is no football manager uh, rival that at all. and. It, It was in the most distinctive way, you know. It was all drinking, effing, blinding, (laughs) getting players who everybody, other clubs, were anxious to get out of the dressing room Mm -hmm. so he didn't have to pay a big transfer fee because we got no money. It was a quite remarkable performance.
1: I think we can all agree, it's the best thing that ever happened. (laughs)
0: Uh, (laughs) You, like me, come from Nottingham. Yeah, yeah, well, again, (laughs) what I try to avoid in politics, you're getting me quite the wrong influence this evening. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they are becoming a football club that lives in the past, you know, all the clubs are oh we remember our great days. And if you're not careful in a hundred years time, you know, anguished Nottingham Forest supporters will be saying oh you remember the great days of Brian Clough and all that, but who knows we might get back. I you weren't at the Emirates last night.
1: No, it wasn't no we
0: We kept do so Arsenal that. down to five nil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, we're, 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 we're not back to Brian Clough yet.
1: It's not, uh, not happened. Uh, I, I remember that period so... Uh, not the glory years I wasn't born, but I remember... Um, I remember you opening... You weren't in, born? I was born in 1982. Um, so I remember later successes. <laughs>
0: but, I, sh- I should stop going on about these historic things. <laughs>
1: yeah. But um, I remember you opening the new stand-in, I think, 1992, the Bridgeford stand and, uh, What I remember about that period was Clough still managing the Forest. John Major's the prime minister that, that year, 1992, starts the season where Forest get relegated. It's also the year that John Major scores this incredible victory, really, against, against Neil Kinnock. And mm. it was the first real political memory that I have is the 92 election. And re- even as a kid thinking, oh, well, Kinnock's going to win this. I
0: mean, at the, As everybody thought.
1: Yeah, and did you think he was going to win?
0: Well, I think the world thought he was going to win, uh, <laughs> that, that, that Kinnock was going to win. That, that was John Major's highlight. That was John Major's highlight. Um, and John was a good Prime Minister, but um, and I'd probably annoy him by always saying Thatcher was the best Prime Minister I ever worked for, <laughs> leaving aside all the problems, uh, um, well, John's a great mate of mine, but, but, but the achievement of the major government really, historic achievement, uh, was to consolidate the Thatcher structural reforms. Now that 1992 government we were going to lose, I thought we were going to lose, anybody who knew anything about politics thought we were going to lose. <coughs> And if you remember, if you are obviously with old enough then to remember the campaign, it was very much John Major with this weird thing of getting an old soapbox out yes. and doing appearances. Uh, and, and it was Thatcherism with a human face. and he came across as the thorough which he is, as a thoroughly decent, nice guy, uh, you know, great achievements to his name, to have ever become uh, a prime minister as he had. Uh, The left helped him enormously by turning up and barracking him so he was always surrounded by uh, the worst elements of the Labour Party shrieking and chanting at him which fed uh, the message and it was rather a personal election win and we carried on the agenda but with more of a social conscience, slightly more restrained, but we consolidated things. And the 1992 defeat had a shattering effect. On the Labour Party, Kinnock had made a great achievement in modernising the Labour Party and making it electable again. But it hadn't quite got there. And I think it was John Smith by then. Was, was it Smith by then? Uh, yeah, after
1: '92.
0: Yeah, it uh, yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah, was after. Yeah, so it was Kinnock. But he would have. It was Kinnock. He would have felt obliged to start reversing half the Thatcher things. The movement was still devoted to repealing the trade union laws and all this. When they, were, when they got over being shattered by the fact they'd lost the election, I mean, most of the Labour politicians I knew could not believe they'd lost again. I mean, the, people begin to say, can the Labour Party ever win an election ever again? Because they've been out for so long. Blair, Mandelson, Brown, actually decided the party had got to change. They weren't going to reverse the Thatcher reforms. They had to come to terms with the Thatcher reforms. They had to turn the Labour Party into a a social Democrat party that was looking forward and didn't want a rerun of the miners' strike or whatever to get revenge on the other side. That's how, helped by our Eurosceptics, Blair won power so convincingly in 1997. And he brought in the Labour Party, totally new Labour Party, as I've already said, made absolutely no attempt whatever to reverse any of the structural reforms. And that was the major government's achievement. And the Corbyn Easters now. Hate the Blairites far more than they hate <laughs> Tories. Uh, they're in as Tories, but uh, they're trying to reverse that. And if I was a Labour man, I would obviously be one of those who would think that's a historic, disastrous sustain. If the Labour Party had a social democrat leader now, they'd be 30% ahead in, in the polls and onto a walkover.
1: Uh, I, I remember you getting involved in a campaign called uh, Britain in Europe. Uh, early on in that new uh, Labour period and it was you know, and Michael time, I think it was Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they did these cross party mm, I went yeah, to one t- in
0: Nottingham. Uh, Michael and I, uh, Heather and I, have appeared on a platform uh, with Tony Blair and a rather more reluctant Gordon Brown. <laughs> <and> <laughs> all this, yes, didn't I? It was just making a message, it, 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 uh, but, uh, it, but... Imagine it, if it that campaign
1: up. would have continued and we'd have had a Well, it has really. But imagine if it had been an organised cross party pro European drumbeat that the that, that successive leaderships sort would of have signed up to. We might not have voted to
0: leave. Well, uh, they, they, I mean, we, we, we're trying to get cross party things going now. Yes, the, the campaigns all run into the ground, but it was it, it's, 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 well, it's part of the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, and it, we never quite, I say, the nearest we got to getting rid of this European revive, uh, divide, which I won't repeat, I think it's symbolic of a lot of other things, it's why it persists, was the late 1980s. For a time, in the late 1980s, in the, uh, the the country was settling down to the European Union, and I think it would have settled down irreversibly. If you want me to go in for mad theories again, it, the fall of Margaret Thatcher is caused to go backwards. Uh, the, the, the people who surrounded Margaret after she, in the bitterness of being defeated and when she retired persuaded her it was all a European plot that had brought her down and revenge for Margaret Thatcher was the driving motive that put the Maastricht rebels together again and it all flared up again and the Tory parties never got rid of it and nor is the Labour Party really, you've still got Michael Foote and the Eurosceptics fighting the Jenkinsites and uh, both parties have got mad coalitions, uh, constitutions uh, for their parties when it comes to electing leaders. So in in both parties there's a pro-European Conservative majority, there's a pro-European Social Democrat majority in the Parliamentary Labour Party and at the moment, both parties are being led by the anti-European right and the anti-European left.
1: I mean, th- those, those structures and those constitutions are, are, are something that you have painful personal experience of in, in 97, 01 and 05. And I, what I really remember about that period was, I was very much a supporter of New Labour, and uh, thinking, well, obviously the Tories have got to pick Ken Clark if they want to win.
0: And it, just everyone I spoke to even... Conservative... I, think that was Tony, I think that was Tony Blair's view. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my being arrogant that I don't know. But, yeah, well, I can't blame the system. It was fashionable in the 1990s to say the members decide the leadership. I actually think the sensible system is for MPs to decide the leadership because they know the candidates intimately well and they're the ones who've got to actually fall in behind the leadership of the winner and organize the campaigning and the parliamentary activity that gets them to power if they can but it was fashionable in the 1990s to go with this democracy and both parties have now gone to giving votes to anybody who pays a subscription uh, which attracts activists who don't really represent the broad vote that they have outside so i can't complain too much because I've lost so often. I lost by both systems. I, 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 I lost for the MPs one only to so William Hague, and then I lost to the membership a couple of times. So uh, I was I was too pro-European, is my defence. So that was the thing. And all all my supporters always urged me to make a Eurosceptic speech to calm it down and, and to modify it, which I thought would just get me laughed at. Anyway. I, I didn't want to be Prime Minister pretending that I agreed with policies that I thought were utterly unacceptable. So. But anyway, I'm not lamenting, probably I had a much better life <laughs> if. Uh, but that, that's the, the system is, is now part of the system, because I mean, if you, <coughs> half the Labour Party don't want an election at the moment, because they dread the idea of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. <laughs> and so the vast bulk of the public. And as i say the Labour Party would be on to a walkover. If they, could, if they could only get rid of Jeremy, it is the current position.
1: <clears throat> the last time you stood for the leadership was 2005. That was the leadership contest that David Cameron won, uh, eventually against David Davis. How would, a, apart from probably not having a referendum on uh, whether to uh, leave the European Union or not, how would a Ken Clark government from 2010 onwards been different to a, the, the Cameron government that we had?
0: Um, well, and the Cameron government was not bad, actually. It was a very good coalition government. Uh, if I'd been in coalition, I doubt that it would change much. I mean, the, the coalition worked very well. Uh, Lib Dems were quite good, uh, were good coalition partners. They were a perfectly reasonable lot. Um, and, and divisions within the government <coughs> and arguments about things weren't even on party lines, actually. Uh, you know, when we did disagree and had to come to some conclusions to how we're proceeding, often you'd have liberals and conservatives on one side and liberals and conservatives on the other. Um, <coughs> Uh, I, I, I probably I'm a combative, reforming sort of bloke, an activist sort of bloke, which is no doubt one of my weaknesses. Uh, so I don't know. We probably have, I, I've probably gone in for some again. Carried on my my, my every every department I ever had. I had to have some agenda. I had to be changing something for what I thought was a worthwhile difference. That's a bit more of that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with Cameron's record apart from the one obvious blemish, which will damage his historical reputation irreversibly, that this reckless, sort of irresponsible uh, decision to hold a referendum. And Tony's the same. Tony ran a pretty good government, really. Uh, but there was one awful, terrible mistake. Iraq. Iraq Uh, (laughs) uh, 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 and uh, he'll he'll never get rid of that in his historic reputation and I defied the Tory whip and Ian Duncan Smith our leader and all that by being the most vociferous conservative against the invasion of Iraq so but anyway uh, otherwise I'm not sure the tone of the government I hope if I'd let it uh, would have been very similar actually looking back that last time I stood, uh, it was a very good idea that I lost in, in the sense that the, the decision taken was very sensible. Skip a generation. Get away from all the old arguments. I had far too much baggage. Uh, I might have won that last time, except my votes were all taken by Cameron. And people who I always thought were going to vote for the Parliamentary Party, suddenly, you could tell, they were suddenly saying they were going to vote for Cameron because Cameron was saying the right modernizing, one-nation, Tory things. He had absolutely no backstory. He was not associated with the battles of Maastricht, and he hadn't been around arguing with trade unions years ago and all that. Turn over a page and... He made the Conservative Party electable again. We'd gone through ten years having right-wing leaders who couldn't have won an election if they'd gone on for a thousand years, and he made it electable again. And, and he he carried on in coalition, helped by the fact that the Liberals were a very good influence on, on on the cabinet, helped by the fact he was in coalition to run a pretty good stable government. I I was served in the guy, Sir, so followed him for four years. It was pretty good. But towards the end, I did have a damn great row with him. When I read in the newspapers, he was going to promise this wretched referendum. And as we see, as he's publishing his book, uh, trying to defend himself over that is dominating the political discussions around the publication of his book, and it's inevitable. I can't can't imagine myself how, with hindsight, it's ever going to look as though that was a responsible thing to have done.
1: Uh, you, you mentioned defining the whip, you've, you've now had the whip removed, which is just incredible as a, as, a bit a view, old, yeah. as a view of politics. Ken Clarke
0: has had the Conservative whip removed. So, well, Hezer had hit the whip removed in the House of Lords yeah. about two months ago. But
1: he's just...
0: Uh, I've joined him. I mean, he, John Major would have the whip removed if he had one, but he's not going to the Lords.
1: You're still a Conservative member.
0: You're still a Conservative member of Parliament. I'm Conservative it makes, not, I mean, it makes not the slightest practical difference to me. I mean, nothing has changed, whatever. <laughs> the Conservative Party is still operating in the same way in the House of Commons. Um, we, you know, I sit where I used to sit, and uh, I, I eat with all my colleagues, and there's no personal animosity <coughs> at all. Carry on exactly as I did before. Uh, and I will tend, depending how long I've said, to vote Conservative, except on Europe, which has been going on for some time ever since we, we got into this current mode on Europe. And, so I've long ago announced I wasn't going to stand at the election, so I'm just bemused, slightly amused. Um, I apparently am a member of the Conservative Party, I had a conversation, a friendly one and we, you know, just bumped into the corner. Quite well. I know mean, very well. James Cleverly and I weren't quite sure whether I was still a member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> and was he still my chairman, but we he checked it, yes I am, I'm still a member of the Conservative Party. I've just lost the whip. So, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 I am angry on behalf of my younger colleagues. I'm not... not the ones that were pursuing were in midterms with very good political careers. who so If uh, we don't find a way of getting out of this nonsense in the next two or three weeks, uh, there's going to be rows about them being uh, uh, candidates in the forthcoming election. That is very serious. Somebody like me Frankly, I couldn't care less. It doesn't make the slightest difference to anything I do or or plan. Even I have finally realized that the time has come to pack it in. All my my friends are very kindly and politely urging me not to understand. But anyway, losing the conservative whip is... Uh, nobody told me, I read in the newspapers, it, 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 uh, uh, I gather I have lost the whip, um, but, it, it's, but it's but no practical difference to me. It's a very important practical difference to some of the 21, and I shall sure regret it if some very good people are uh, taken out of the party or taken out of politics. Because I'm sure they, ne- they never, never imagined that 21 were going to lose the whip having got themselves into his mess, I trust Downing Street and the Whip's Office are trying to think of some face-saving way of getting out of it and giving the whip back. If there's an ounce of common sense left in Downing Street, that is obviously what they should be doing.
1: Okay, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, if, we can, uh, if you indicate clearly a question you'd like to ask Ken, uh, we'll get a roving mic over to you. And if we can ask for one-sentence questions, and one sentence answers, Ken, and we uh-huh. that's, that's
0: what all television interviews say to me before it starts. Uh, so yeah, the, yeah. the
1: gentleman over on the far I'll side... Uh, and I'll try. And I'll uh, try and get three or four in, but if you could pass the microphone down. Uh, quickly, let us know your name and a quick question. And here we go. Hi, my name's Dan. Um, first, well,
0: first question, only question for Ken is, when did you first come across Nigel Farage
1: and what was your immediate impression?
0: I met him a few times, uh, appearing on television with him. Uh, on th- obviously on, on on question time uh, and things like that uh, i get on very well with him uh he's he, he, you know with the two of us i've never fallen out with anybody personally over their political opinions and we've had quite amusing conversations and things uh, 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 and uh, th- 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 we i think you know each of us i can't see it i don't think we'd ever be good you know close personal friends because we're very different personalities but we get on perfectly reasonably, yeah, and, and uh, I have no objection. I, I think he has quite a different style of campaigning to me or anybody else. But he, he's a very, he's a brilliant campaigner, appealing to the audience he's appealing to. He's very, he's very shrewd. He's got, he's got his head screwed on the right way. I suspect he was a rather canny commodity trader in the city when he used to do that, uh, and, and he's achieved extraordinary success simply because. He latches on to the mood of the times, which uh, I dilated on extensively uh, a little time ago. But um, now I have to admit, much though I regret it, because what he campaigns for is fundamentally against one of my most deeply held political convictions, I don't underestimate him. That's why I think if the party crashes on with this mad policy of trying to win older, white, working class votes in Leave voting constituencies in the north of England, uh, up against it, it's not just the Labour Party, they've got Nigel uh, to take on, and uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, I met one is his entourage in a curry house in London, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, I met him before, I met him with Nigel. so. I had a long chat with him, and the two of us appraised praised the present political situation in a very similar way. <laughs> I think they're quite confident that, uh, you know, things, they, they could make a difference. They're not going to form a government or anything, but they could make a difference if we crash into a, an early election on the present basis. But I, I, I have no reason. <laughs> I have no reason to have any ill feelings towards Nigel Farage. I've got on personally very well. We once were on a question time together on television, and we both got booed by the audience. <laughs> uh, From what this issue was now, the two of us had answered some completely non-European question, and by happy coincidence, we took an identical view, which was plainly against the majority, contrary to the majority of what are nowadays, the very noisy question time audiences you have. So I had the intriguing thing, as did he, of uh, sitting there being booed by large sections of the audience for agreeing with Nigel Farage and he vice versa. Can't remember who it was now.
1: (laughs) Is there anyone here that would like to ask a question? Yes, the lady at the back. Um, You talked a little bit about um, Thatcher busting the unions and how that was necessary to modernizing the economy, which I, to be clear, do not disagree with, but um, I guess a lot of people would now trace that back to breaking worker power, and actually looking today, a lot of the economic issues we have are around workers not having a way to be able to make their weight felt, particularly in negotiations, and you can see that a lot with wages and also the kind of contracts that they end up getting involved in. I don't know if you agree with that or if you think there's any particular way forward. I
0: know there's a direct link. Uh, the union power I'm talking about was the extraordinary union power that developed in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and before we got elected in 1979, uh, the Thatcher government, that is, uh, there was an opinion poll held about who the most powerful people were in the country, and it was a guy called Jack Jones, another called Hugh Scargill. Uh, the public saw as the most powerful people in the country, and a lot of politicians agreed with that. Uh, And there were a lot of conservatives very cautious about union reforms, Uh, again Jim Pryor, because you you couldn't annoy the unions, the public would back the unions, the public always backed the unions, and they always backed strikes, Uh, and it would become absolutely overwhelming. If you were a business leader, I was told at the time, I wasn't one, certainly if you were a minister as I was, a high proportion of your working day was supposed to be spent on industrial relations. One of the things I tried to break from in health <coughs> was to actually have a look at the system and delivery of healthcare. The, the, the job was supposed to be uh, conducting and getting a recent settle, reasonable settlement of this year's pay claim for the highly industrialized workforce of the labor. And the idea that patient outcomes should rank above an agreement on the pay terms and conditions of the members was was as kind of unthinkable. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, Slightly colouring it, my argument, not a great deal. Uh, 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 and that, that had been broken. And uh, uh, Scargill and the coal mines, that was what decided, that was the decisive event. That was the end of the old 1960s union power. Uh, and Scargill had got right in one government. The strike was called in order to get rid of the government. That's what it was about. Uh, the, the cause he was allegedly fighting was ludicrous, that no coal mine should ever be closed in future until all its reserves have been worked out. You, the Communist Czechoslovakia didn't couldn't run its coal mines like that. Uh, it was in order to get rid of the Thatcher government. And he got rid of the Heath government, and he now called a strike to get rid of a second one. And that was the final waterloo of what had been a long battle for 10, 15 years. Now, it is true The world is now totally transformed and tiny proportion of the workforce in the private sector now have any organisation and one of the problems of the last 20 years is the successful in the new economy are very successful and a large part of the population, like the new digital modern high-tech economy, about half the population are stuck still doing nothing for them, no jobs for their kids and their town's been left behind. And amongst other things there's no union representation. That is I think caused by the type of economy we developed. Hasn't just happened here, it's happened in America, happened in most other countries and as you go into today's economy as opposed to the old heavy industrial economies of my youth, then Trade union organisations got to be different, it doesn't always work, the whole section's where you you can't get union power anyway. As I said earlier, I think we've all collectively not quite sure what to do about this left-behind feeling, which is what gives rise to protest, extremist politics, angry anti-establishment feelings, rejections of politicians as a whole class, and an attraction for... Powerful, usually male, apart from Madame Le Pen, machismo figures with simple solutions who can identify scapegoats, foreigners usually, who are responsible for your state of affairs. And and something between the old abuse of union power, which we broke, and today's populist, nationalist, uh, protests uh, has got to be found. And it would be nice to have something which uh, ran capitalism and free markets on a basis which was perceived to distribute the benefits fairer. But you can't go back from where we are now and have somebody like Arthur Scargill back again. There's got to be some happy compromise, which I suppose is just the story of my life. I usually wind up arguing for the happy compromise in most things, believe it or not, despite the combative style I sometimes adopt in trying to get it.
1: Okay, we've got time for one last question, there's a... Yeah, I
0: haven't given you this one-sentence answer.
1: (laughs) Let's see if we can now. Uh, Just keep your hand up, because the microphone's coming to you so that Jules can see you. Let us know your name, and obviously final, and therefore best question of the night. I'm Lucy, I'd
0: really
1: like to know what you think about Joe Swinson. About who? Joe Swinson, the leader of the Liberal Democrats.
0: Oh, Joe, yeah, I like him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want me to answer that seriously? Uh, She's very nice, she's very bright, I I like her, I would have voted for Ed Davey, Uh, he's another Nottingham man, Uh, but the the jury's out on Joe, I mean I I, I wait to see, I can't, I mean I'm not a Liberal Democrat, but but, uh, the, the, the great opportunity of the Liberal Democrats, whenever the Liberal Democrats surge, they're the vehicle for protest votes. And so they've got it. she's suddenly presented with a great opportunity because there are a lot of protest votes about uh, from right and left. Now, so she's, she's got lots of qualities. She's good, bright, intelligent, honest, and, well, you know, motor business is fine. I like her. Uh, and she's very articulate. My reservation is, can I see Jo becoming a national political figure? I'm not sure. She could suffer the fate of Tim Farron. Who's a perfectly decent guy, perfectly all right, and you know, but, but Tim w- was never going to make any great mark on the national stage. He just doesn't have the, you know, the personality and the what you no doubt need to a certain extent, eccentric personal style to make a mark as a political campaigner. Now, is Joe just going to be a very nice woman uh, who happens to be the leader of the Liberal Party whilst they're in protest? Well. I think the jury's out. I as you know, raised my eyebrows at this liberal assembly, but I can see the arguments for taking a, a rather bold, possibly reckless, but only with hindsight will you know whether it'll be dismissed as reckless or courageous, uh, and so on, you never know. So that, that's a non-answer to the last question. <laughs> Isn't probably might be the shortest I've given, but it's not a very competitive field. Uh, (laughs) uh, 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 And uh, I wait to see what Jo Swinson's like. But I'm not. I rather welcome her arrival on the scene, much though I'd have liked my mate Ed to have been given a go instead. But uh, I'm not a Liberal Democrat, so that had nothing to do with me.
1: Ken, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure. We'll be back uh, at uh, the end of next month, where I can almost confirm the guests, but not yet. And uh, <laughs> the, um, the Christmas special is on sale at the Bloomsbury uh, Theatre at the end of December. Check uh, the Twitter feed I'm at Matt Ford for uh, future guests. I have some very exciting guests that are confirmed, but not yet announced for future dates, so watch this space. But ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be back, but please give a huge thank you to one of the greatest guests we've ever had here, potentially our next Prime Minister, <laughs> <Ken Card. laughs> <laughs> there you go, Ken Clark. What an absolute hero in so many ways. Even the things I disagreed with him on. It's amazing as well, just how he's still Ken Clark. And I know that sounds like such a silly thing to say, but he's not diminished by time at all. He's still full of beans, still got that brilliant booming voice. He's got a great voice to listen to. And still funny, his wisdom is undimmed. His memory is crystal clear. His analysis is great. I just, my word, one of those people you have to slightly pinch yourself afterwards that you've actually met. Um, But just, uh, yeah, really a, a quality, it feels like, from a completely different time now. And that's not really saying much because obviously politics is become far more chaotic in the last three or four years but he really feels like particularly a conservative from a different era and even though uh you know i was never a conservative the one thing i've always respected about the party is people like ken clark and dominic grieve and the the people who believe in um, <laughs> a, a, a sense of uh, it's not even just about dignity but that the rules matter um, and the rules are there for a reason, um, and there's a kind of res- there's an inherent respect for democracy in parliament contained within that. And you can tell that he, and like Dominic Grieve and others, are, are, are agitated by this period. Not just because they disagree with Brexit, but because the way in which it is being conducted offends them as conservatives. It, it, it contradicts what they believe conservatives are. I think so. It's just oh man. He was great. And talking to him about Forrest, obviously, just... Um, although the cloth stories were great, so I, I don't believe that was too self-indulgent. But uh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you thought. I have to say, it's been a real pleasure of late to have had so many emails. Uh, I always get quite a few. In the last few weeks, there have been far more, so I don't know whether this is Brexit-related or or um, or whatever. But uh, James East got in touch uh, he says, I've begun to listen to the back catalogue of your podcast in the last several days. I do get quite a few emails from people saying that because they've heard an interview elsewhere, they weren't aware of the show and then they just binge on the whole thing. Um, a friend of mine did this recently, so I was getting texts about the Charles Clark episode or uh, the uh, the Alastair Campbell episodes, which is great fun because obviously I... I don't go back and listen to them so I've no idea whether we'll have made fools out of ourselves in making predictions about the future Um, but James E says uh, he's a Conservative Party member uh, more or less since David Cameron's rise to power 46 years old uh, I run the family timber business in somewhat difficult times I cannot fully express how disappointed I am in Cameron's successes and how little the current party resembles something that I feel I could vote for he says however I take hope Excuse me. I take hope and comfort from your guests. Perhaps, by now, perhaps, Rory Stewart is a busted flush, although I hope not, but both he and Sam Gimer are brilliant and articulate and eminently electable. Well, Sam Gimer, of course, now a Liberal Democrat, James, so uh, I wonder if that means that you, you'll be voting Lib Dem for the first time in your life. Uh, we'll see. Uh, James Silcox um, gets in touch about the Darren Grimes episode now. Uh I had loads of tweets about the Darren Grimes episode, broadly falling into two camps. and I'm sure you can imagine what those two camps were. Um, But he says, ''This was the episode where my expectations were most dramatically proven to be incorrect. I'd never heard or seen Darren speak before. I'd only really read about him in news articles. And from this, I expected him to have a degree of youthful self-righteousness and arrogance, perhaps with a similar personality.'' Uh, to and he mentioned someone else who uh, it wouldn't be fair for me to name, so let's forget that bit. He says, like you, I voted Remain, and I disagree with Darren's views on the EU, but it was still really interesting to hear his background story and to hear him express his vulnerabilities in a very human way. So thank you very much, James in Lincolnshire. James, I felt exactly the same way about Darren. Um, I, I uh, don't share his politics around Brexit, but i I've had him on the show because I've been fascinated by him and for me, as I said last week, it was one of the most enjoyable ones uh, I've ever done. Um, uh, Harold gets in touch and says, Thank you for the podcast. I listen to it while fixing copiers or driving from customer to customer here in Norway. Amazing. Harold, thank you so much. Uh, a Norway deal has been found through this podcast. Um, uh, also, Ross gets in touch say listens in Japan. And not just in Japan, but while hiking through the mountains of Japan. Well, I mean, if you can beat that, um, do email politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all your emails. Of course, I can't read them all out. Um, But it's always just lovely to hear what your favourite episodes are, where you listen, how you got into it, and any recommendations for guests. I've had some fantastic suggestions from guests, from listeners that I've already started to pursue, so hopefully I can make your dream come true. Um, And don't forget, you can get tickets to those London shows, the Christmas party special. By the way, the the political party at the Other Palace does sell out quite a way in advance, but there are still tickets left for some of the later ones next year. You can go to the website otherpalace.co.uk, The Christmas party special on the 18th of December is now on sale. Uh, The ticket link for that is in the show notes. And my solo show, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, which uh, enjoyed um, a a wonderful run at this year's Edinburgh Festival, uh, is now being brought to London. Uh, So you can come and see it at King's Place on the 12th of October, or before that, the 6th of October, at the South Bank Centre. And as I said before, the links to those tickets are in the the show notes uh, right here. So thank you so much for listening to this. If you could leave a review on iTunes, it really does help so many more people find the show uh, and listen to it. And if you could just share it with a friend, put it on your Facebook, on your Instagram, on your Twitter when the show comes out. It just helps people find it. Um, so thank you. See you soon. ta A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend